Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. I'd like to encourage you to turn with me, please, in your Bibles, if you have them, to the Gospel of John, John chapter 6. We're going to be in John chapter 6, beginning around verse 25 in just a little while. We're going to make our way there, but for now, hold your place at John 6, 25. I had an interesting conversation this week at Kroger. I was in line, and a man behind me in line said to me, I know you. I said, oh? I didn't recognize him, and that's not uncommon. I thought, well, maybe he's someone who's been coming to church, and I just haven't met them yet. I said, I'm sorry, remind me your name. He goes, I know you. I know you. He told me his name. He said, you're that you're that pastor. I said, I'm one of them. <laughs> he said, no, the one over at the, at the Baptist church, the Johns Creek Baptist church, I've come to some of your programs there and I've got a grandchild in the preschool. I said, oh, great. We had a wonderful conversation. I invited him to come to church. You may be here today. I don't know. And I hope, I hope that you are. We had a great conversation. Uh, nice, nice person. I got to thinking after we left that conversation, though, what does it mean to know somebody? I know you. You know, you can know a lot about somebody by simply observing them casually, right? I mean, we've been here together as pastor and people for over 10 years now, and just by casually observing, you know some things about me, right? I bet if I gave you a pop quiz on a few things, you you would pass with flying colors. I have a wife and her name is? There you go, well done. I have how many children? Two. Two that we know of. (laughs) Stop it, that's not funny, just kidding. Stop. If I had a free day and had a choice to play a round of golf or work in my wood shop, what would I do? Yeah, yeah, good. At the gym, do I lift weights or do yoga? (laughs) Right, I don't, yoga and I have a bad relationship. This is for another sermon altogether. That's right. Do I preach long sermons or short? Oh gosh, oh come on, be nice. That's not nice. Jesus said, be nice. Tell the truth, that's right. You can know a lot about someone by simply observing them casually, right? It's a little bit like uh, the story of Karl Barth, a great theologian in the 20th century. He lived in, he lived in uh, Basel, uh, Switzerland, and he got on a streetcar one day and he sat down next to a tourist. He knew that this was a tourist. And he said, are you new in the city? Yes, I am. Is there anything in particular that you want to see while you're in the city? He said, oh, yes. I would really love the opportunity to meet the great theologian, Karl Barth. 
And Karl Barth said, oh. The man said, you don't know him, do you? He said, I do, I do, quite well. In fact, I give him a shave every morning. <laughs> he said, you are kidding me. Really, are you serious? This is amazing, wow. He got off the streetcar, went to the hotel to tell his wife, you'll never guess who I met this morning. I met Carl Bart's barber. Right? <laughs> you, you can learn a lot about somebody by simply observing them. You know, you can learn a lot about somebody. You can know all kinds of things about them. You, you can know about their style and their personality. You can know about their reputation. You can know about what they drive and where they work and how they take their coffee. You can know about where they live and who they love and what team they root for on Saturdays in the fall. You can know a lot about somebody by simply watching. But there is a great difference between knowing about something and knowing something. There's a great difference between knowing ab about someone and knowing, truly knowing someone. To know about somebody, you can do that from a distance. All you need is, is Google or Facebook. You know about someone from a distance where it's safe and you can remain invisible and unknown yourself. You can know a lot about somebody that way, but to know somebody, I mean truly, actually really know somebody, it means it requires more of you. It requires showing up. It, it requires being present. It requires walking alongside someone and standing in front of someone and sitting with someone long enough to know their deepest hopes and fears, to know all about the shadows that follow them through life, to know a little bit about the demons they carry around with them, to know about their deepest sin that so often besets them, and to know something about their deepest regrets. That's knowing someone. And I meet people all the time who, who go through life never knowing nor being known by anybody. And the reason is because knowing someone requires more of you. It requires a kind of courage to show up. Knowing someone means that it might be possible that you have to be vulnerable yourself. It might be possible that you have to be seen or known or exposed for who you are. And you and I both know people who go through our whole life never knowing or being known by anyone. And that's tragic. That breaks this pastor's heart because in 2023, your pastors have been talking about a singular focus for our ministry this whole year, and that is making more and deeper disciples of Jesus. And the trouble is churches are filled with people all over the country and sometimes all over the world who know everything in the world there is to know about Jesus. 
And there may be someone here even, I guarantee you, there are people here, you know everything about Jesus there is to be known. You can quote the scriptures, you can tell about the miracles, you can recite the parables, you can regurgitate the doctrines that we've crammed down your throats for as long as you've been letting us do that. There is the possibility that you can know everything there is to be known about Jesus and never actually know him. And if you don't know him, you can't be transformed by him. We started talking about this on Wednesday night at our Ash Wednesday service because the truth of the matter is, I said a little bit of things, a few things that night about how what we revere, we resemble, right? G.K. Beale says, whatever people revere the most, they resemble, whether for their ruin or their restoration. And that night I said that when we revere him, it's like looking in a mirror. It's as if we fix our gaze upon the cross to consider all of his character and all many ways of his what way. we do on an Ash Wednesday when looking at him, service. It's as if looking at a mirror as because we come, when we consider him and fix our gaze upon the cross, we are reminded of all the things in us that are not like him. And in time, gradually, the more we revere him and give our life to him, all of that which is unchristlike melts away the selfishness, the arrogance, the pride, until suddenly all that is in him begins to transform all that is in us and we become more like him. We take on the character of the very one we revere the most. That's why that night I said something like this. Who I am is informed and transformed by who he is. Who I am is transformed and informed or informed and transformed by who he is. Everything that is in him determines what is in me. And if I don't know him, I can't be transformed by him. And that's what this whole series is all about. Because if it's true that everything in him has the capacity to transform for the better everything in you, and you don't know him, the possibility of true transformation is not yours. So I say we spend a little time getting to know him. And what better way to get to know the one who, whose very character and call can shape everything about our character and call than to listen to him describe himself. We spend a great many words trying to talk about him but what if we let him do the talking? In the Gospel of John, there are seven I am statements, seven self-declarations by Jesus about who he is and why he's here. Seven of these statements that throughout the season of Lent, we're going to be immersing ourselves in because if we do that, we might just learn something about the call and the character of him. But more than that, in learning about the call and character of him, we'll learn what it is about him that can actually transform the call and the character of ourselves. Put another way, I could say it this way. I am who he says I am. I am who he says I am. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing other. 
than who he says I am. And the very first I am statement out of the seven that we study comes to us at the heart of the sixth chapter of John, and it is I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. You know, two weeks ago, Pastor Terry She preached an amazing sermon about the feeding of the multitudes. And that story of the feeding of the multitudes is actually the context out of which this first I am statement emerges. I am the bread of life. And then last week, you and I, we, we broke bread together. We shared in the Lord's Supper together. So these past two weeks have been leading us up to appropriately examine the first of the I am statements. I am the bread of life. And we read about it in John chapter 6 beginning in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, see, after the feeding of the multitudes, he was tired. He retreated a while and then emerged the next day on the other side of the sea, but they found him and they came to him. When when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For it is on him that God the Father has set his seal, his seal of approval. Then they said to him, what must we do to perform the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, what sign are you going to give us then so that we might see it and believe you? What, what can you show us about yourself? Give us more information about you that we might be able to believe. What work are you going to perform? See, our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it was my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, Give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am. I am. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. This is a fascinating moment. The people come to him, and they surround him because they know what he can do, and they want to see more. That's usually... It's usually what people do who just know something about you. What can you do for me? What can you give me? We've heard about the things you can do and we've seen a few of them ourselves. What, what, what can you show us, give us something? That's what you do when you know about somebody. But if they knew him, if they knew him, See, what John is doing in the layout of John's gospel is he's telling this story in a way to trigger our theological memory. 
because this is to remind us of an old story generations before in Exodus chapter 16, where another feeding of the multitudes had already happened. The manna from heaven and God fed the multitudes of Israelites as they came out of Egypt into the Exodus, into the wilderness. And so the people in this story are linking what they knew about Moses to what they now know about Jesus and they want more. And Jesus said, you, you've, you have missed it completely. It wasn't even Moses who gave them bread. It was God who gave them bread. I'm not some, just some sign maker. I'm not some bread baker. I'm not some multiplier of bread or distributor of bread. I am the bread. I am everything that you could possibly want to fulfill every hunger of your life. If you were to consume my character, my love, my compassion, my mercy, my forgiveness, my love, you'd never be hungry again. Anybody ever, ever tried to give up carbs before? Be confessional, you're in church, God is watching. Yeah, and you know what? I've done it on and off throughout the years. You give up carbs, and after a few days, you're like, the carbs are out of my system. I feel you know, clean, and all of a sudden, maybe the, maybe the belt line is looser. Maybe the scales are telling you something. I'm feeling pretty good. You go several days with no bread, no, nothing good at all to eat, and, and there's no carbs in your system, and then you're like, hey. And then the diet plan that you're on or the food plan that you're on says something like, hey, after X number of days, go ahead and, and reintroduce some carb cycling, a little bit of carbs here, a little bit of there, and then, then what happens? As soon as you eat them, like when I, if I'm off carbs and I have a free day and I'm supposed to reintroduce a carb, I'll do something really clean and nice in the morning. I'll be like, you know, oatmeal, nice and just oatmeal, a little peanut butter, delicious, safe, it's clean. But by that night, I've eaten a sleeve of Oreos with double stuff. <laughs> because you eat and what you eat, you want more of. You want more of what you eat and you are what you eat. If all you eat is bagels, you will become a big old bagel, right? And Jesus knows this is true. The more you eat of a thing, the more you hunger for that thing. And he's saying, y'all are eating the wrong bread. You keep trying to satisfy the soul hunger that you have with every kind of food that leaves you hungry again that I am the bread of life. And if you come to me, you will never hunger again. If you believe in me, you will never thirst again. See, this is, this is the difference between knowing about him and knowing him. What he wants to do in us is more than fill us with information about him he wants to so transform us that we become what he is. See, everything that is him defines everything that is me. In fact, I might, I might put it this way. If you simply only know about him, you'll look to Jesus for the things he can do for you. Hey, show us a sign. Give us some more bread. We've heard these things about you. Give us some more. If you only know about him, you look to Jesus for what he can do for you. That's the difference between somebody who knows about him, but someone who knows 
truly knows him is more like if you truly know him, you look to Jesus for what he can do through you. If you know only about him, you look to him for what he can do for you. But if you really know him, you, you recognize that he wants to do something through you. He wants his very character and essence to be alive in the world through your lived experience. For the compassion and mercy and love and justice that made up our Lord to be alive in our everyday relationships with one another. In the way that we are good neighbors to one another. If I wanted to say it another way, yeah, he came, this bread of life, so that we might be fed. But he didn't just come so that we might be fed. The bread of life came so that we might be bread. We, he came that we might be fed so that we also might be bread, that we may take on the very character of him. And maybe the best way to understand this, I don't know, I just need to break down a little bit of science for you maybe. I got to thinking, how can we describe what it means for the bread of life, not just to feed us, but to transform us into his very character in the world? And I got to talking to my wife, who is a culinary arts master, right? She is just, she's a chef, she's a baker, she's a cook, she's everything. She's, and I said, tell me about the process of making bread. Because if Jesus chose out of seven options to describe who he is. And he said, you know what? Think about it like this. I am, mm, I don't know, bread. Then maybe we had to break down what it means to be bread. As it turns out, there are some stages to the baking of bread, to the making of bread. Now there may be many, many, many stages in the way that you do it, but you can break it down in five steps. And I hear these steps of making bread as parables to describe not only what was happening in the life of the bread of life, Jesus, but what Jesus, the bread of life, wants to do in you. Because the very first step in making bread is bloom the yeast. You know what it means to bloom the yeast? It means that the yeast has to be mixed with some warm water and some sugar. And you know why? Because I'm told that yeast on its own is dormant. In other words, yeast on its own is asleep and needs to wake up. Blooming the yeast wakes up the yeast. And the very first step of bread making is perhaps the best sermon of all. Some of us are sleepwalking through our lives. And the bread of life wants to, to bloom the yeast of our souls that we may recognize we're not meant to sleepwalk through life. Romans puts it this way. Besides this, you know what time it is and how it is now the moment for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we became believers. And in Ephesians, we read the same kind of message. We hear it this way, wake up, O sleeper, rise up from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Some of you may be here today and, and you're, you're here comatose in soul. Maybe you're here not because you hunger and thirst for an aliveness that only Christ can bring, but maybe you're here because out of compulsion, your spouse made you come, your parents made you come. And maybe the first step for you is to recognize that the bread of life wants to bloom the yeast of your soul, to wake you to an awareness that you were made for more, that you were made to be alive, not just live, 
So I asked my wife, I said, when, when do you know that the yeast is ready to move on to the next step after you've mixed it with the water and the sugar? How do you know? You know what she said to me? She said, because it will foam and move. Oh my. Do you know Sometimes that stirring in your heart when you're on the edge of wanting to do something in faith, but you don't know if you have the courage to do it today. Maybe I'll wait until next week. Maybe if I have somebody else with me, or maybe if I have one more answer to the questions I can't seem to answer, then it'll be time for me to go. But that stirring is yeast moving in you. It is the power of God's presence, the bread of life, waking you up from sleep. Which means now you're ready for the second step of the baking process. Now, after you've taken the yeast and it's on the move, it's moving around now, and you're able to mix it with the other ingredients like flour and other things, you've created a dough, and now the second step is kneading the dough. You know what kneading is, right? It's pressing down on the dough, turning it over on itself, making a quarter turn and repeating the process. You're putting pressure on the dough. You're squeezing it and pushing it and pressing it and turning it and folding it over on itself again and again and again. It's kneading the yolk. And you know why you do that? Why you knead the dough? Because kneading the dough creates elasticity in the gluten structure of the dough. And the elasticity of the gluten structure is important because the gluten structure is what holds the thing together. Think about a baguette. And the baguette is nice and crusty and firm on the outside, but soft and chewy on the inside. Am I making you hungry? I hope I am. But you can't get that without the gluten structure. You can't get the gluten structure until you have the kind of pressure that creates elasticity to hold it together. And most of us want an easy life. Most of us want no pressure at all. We got enough pressure at work. We got enough pressure at home. We got enough troubles with the kids. We got enough troubles with the parents. And we certainly don't want to come to church and feel pressure or tension or struggle. <laughs> Beloved, at the very heart of faith is struggle. Do you know why? It is by faith in the pushing down and the folding over and the squeezing together and the pressure of kneading the dough that we are forming within ourselves or Christ, the bread of life, is forming within us the elasticity of the gluten structure of the soul so that when the heat comes, we are held together on the inside and you don't get that way without pressure. Everybody needs to be needed. That's why James says it in chapter one. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. It, it produces elasticity in the gluten structure of your soul, all this pressure does. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and lacking in nothing. We must tell our children when they come into faith, as they walk through the waters of baptism, you, you heard Annie, Pastor Annie a moment ago say, there will be hard days. Don't let the world 
confuse you. Church and faith and life is not about taking the easy road. It's about welcoming the needing of the soul so that you are held together when the heat comes. That's the third step in the making or the second step in the making of bread. You know what the third step is? The third step is interesting to me. It's called the first rise. Now you have the bread and the yeast has been bloomed and it's all been kneaded out. And now you put it in this bowl that's greased up, you know, so it doesn't stick to the side, put a little towel over it. And something very interesting happens. The yeast interacts with various environmental triggers within the dough, like heat and moisture and acidity. And it creates little gases like carbon dioxide and sometimes ethanol. And you know what that gas does? Those gases create little bubbles that get trapped in the dough. And, and then when the dough is mixed, well then the starch in the flour mixes with the moisture in the dough to create a kind of matrix that is supported by particular kinds of proteins like gluten or other polysaccharides like, like pentazoles and, and xanthan gum. Am I preaching to anybody here? And then, then what happens is the dough gelatinizes and, and when it becomes firm, the gas leaves, but the bubbles stay and the thing swells to twice its size. In other words, when the leaven is mixed with the environmental triggers, it grows. And you think that your childhood wound that follows you around and gets triggered every Thanksgiving at the house that you go to is a problem. And you think that the breakup was insurmountable and that losing your job, you wouldn't survive. And you think that all these things that trigger your anxiety and keep you in a, in a low state of constant depression and anxiety, you think these things that trigger you are somehow the absence of faith or the opposite of faith or somehow the vacancy of something good and beautiful and right. And I say to you, it's those very environmental triggers that the leaven of God's love will mix with to grow you into what you could not have otherwise been grown into. Every environmental trigger that we wish were not part of our story, that we wish were behind us, when God shows up in the leaven of Christ's love, God will use the most painful, unwanted seasons of our lives to grow us. So the thing grows to twice its size and now you're ready for the fourth step in the process. Now these last two steps are the most beautiful of all. Even what we call them makes me just crazy. The fourth step in the process is called the punch down. Oh my, the punch down? Are you kidding me? After the yeast has bloomed and the thing has been kneaded out after the pressure of life and all of a sudden we got past that pressure and now we're past it and we've grown. And now we have, gone to, we have risen above our station. And now we're past all the previous pain. We have now grown. Surely our better days are ahead and everything that was painful is behind us. And then comes the punch down. And you gotta punch down the dough to make it flat again. And do you know why? 
This is the stage in which you add different ingredients, cinnamon, sugar, spices, herbs, so that then after you punch it back down, it can be formed into the shape that you want it formed in. That means that you can make it long like a French roll. You can make it round like sourdough. You can make a pretzel if you want to. After the punch down, you twist it into a pretzel shape and you dip it in hot water and corn starch. It gives it that nice brown outer crusty shell and on the inside nice and soft ready for some mustard and you know it's. But it can't happen without the punch down to where it is punched back down. And the trouble is some of us are in a season called the punch down season. And you thought your, your worst days were behind you and it took so much to get where you are after the thing that changed everything. And you never thought you'd get past it, but you did. And now in the environmental triggers of you, now you're growing and now you're swelling and you thought everything was now to the finish line and then the punch down comes, but I'm here to tell you, don't resist the punch down stage because it's in the punch down that God shapes us into what is singularly unique about each one of us. Don't forget what was written in 2 Corinthians chapter four. See, we have this treasure in clay jars so that we may, it may be made clear that this extraordinary treasure does not belong to us, but uh, does not come from us, but belongs to God. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, yes, but not driven into despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, punched down, kneaded out, but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be also visible in our bodies. Beloved, during seasons in which you have been punched down, understand that the bread of life was punched down as well. And everything that he is defines who we are. And if we are to be transformed into his image, understand that the punch down season is nothing to resist, but to welcome because it is in the punch down that we are shaped into who God had hoped we might become. And do you know that it's only after the punch down, after we've lost everything, after we've gone through the grief, after we have tried to pick ourselves up but cannot on our own, that we are ready for the final stage of making bread. And when my wife told me the name of this final stage, I about came out of my skin, I about came unglued. Do you know what the final name? Wait, after, after waking up the yeast, blooming the yeast, after kneading the dough, after that first rise where you get past the thing you thought you were getting past, then after the punch down, you know what it comes next and, and, and final? <laughs> the second rise. In other words, after you wake up, oh sleeper, and after you are kneaded out, after you have come up past all that environmental trigger that has caused you pain, after you've been punched back down, there is a rising again. There's a rising again. Because if in his death we identify, then in his resurrection we identify. 
That means if he be raised, raised indeed, you and I will be raised as well. The way we read about it in the very same chapter of 2 Corinthians is here. We're not keeping this quiet, not on your life. Just like the psalmist who wrote, I believed it, so I said it. We say what we believe. And what we believe is that the one who raised up the master Jesus will just as certainly raise us up with you alive. Every detail works to your advantage and to God's glory. More and more grace, more and more people, more and more praise. Thanks be to God.